Welcome to Public Historians at Work, a podcast series from the Center for Public History at the University of Houston. This season, we're examining how public historians engage with race and the roots of systemic racism in our city, state, and nation. In this special supplement, graduate students from the University of Houston highlight voices and stories from the Third Ward, a historic Black neighborhood at the heart of the city. Let's listen in. Emancipation Park is busy today. It's sunny here in Houston as a slight breeze shakes the tree branches. Locals who've lived through multiple hurricanes and blistering summers know they have to soak up the spring rays while they can. A step group practices for an upcoming performance while children skate in circles on the pavement. A father plays catch with his daughter and another dad sets up cones for soccer practice. A young boy and girl share a giggle on the swing as birds chirp overhead. The community pool is empty, but tennis players squeak around on the nearby courts. The scene evokes a small town feeling, but distant sirens and the skyline jutting out from behind the ball fields reminds you that you're in one of the largest cities in the country. It hasn't always looked like this in Emancipation Park. What started out as a plot of land for holiday celebrations grew into a hub for black life in Third Ward. As the park aged and the neighborhood shifted around it, emancipation slipped into disrepair. Then, in 2007, community members led the charge to revitalize the park. With a mix of private and public funding, emancipation got a $33 million facelift that included renovations, new amenities, and public art. But even in the new Emancipation Park, the past is present. In each of the park's four corners, columns dedicated to its founders rise from the dirt. These physical pillars take visitors back to 1872, when emancipated Houstonians had a vision of creating an everlasting pillar of Third Ward community. seventies was a town on the rise. It had a bustling grain and cotton economy and was right on the cusp of creating a ship channel that would make it a leader in international trade. Dubbed as the place where 17 railroads meet the sea, the city saw an influx of people moving into the area for jobs. John Henry Yates, known by his nickname Jack, moved to Houston for the same reason in 1865. He was born in Virginia in 1828 and enslaved by the Fields family. He followed his wife Harriet and their children to Texas in 1863 when Harriet's enslaver moved to Matagorda County. Jacqueline Bostick, Yates' great-granddaughter, told the Texas Observer in 2017 that Jack was a man of deep faith. She said he had a value system that believed in doing what you had to do to take care of your family.
News that the Civil War had ended took a while to get to Texas. Union General Gordon Granger landed in Galveston, Texas, on June 19, 1865, bringing with him a proclamation declaring the immediate emancipation of Black Americans. Upon hearing this, the Yates packed up and settled in Houston's Fourth Ward, where Jack became a preacher at Antioch Missionary Baptist Church. Other emancipated families joined them, and the area became a tight-knit neighborhood known as Freedmanstown. It was a community filled with churches, schools, and businesses for Black residents. This self-contained space offered peace and time away from the routine discrimination Black Houstonians faced from their white counterparts. But Yates and others in Freedmanstown wanted more than peace. They wanted a place for celebration. Specifically, they wanted a place to observe Juneteenth a holiday marking the anniversary of emancipation in Texas. To create such a space, Yates joined forces with Richard Allen, Richard Brock, and David Elias Stipple. Like Yates, these three men were born enslaved in other parts of the South and came to Texas with their enslaver. After emancipation, they became tradesmen, business owners, politicians, and community organizers. Richard Allen worked as a carpenter and mechanic in Third Ward. He attended Antioch Baptist while Yates was the pastor and became an agent for the Federal Freedmen's Bureau, where he helped Black Houstonians gain the resources to build a life after enslavement. A blacksmith by trade, Richard Brock lived in the First Ward and attended St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church. He became one of the city's first black aldermen in 1870 when the state governor appointed him to fill a seat in Fourth Ward. Two years later, he was elected to represent his own district in First Ward. David Elias Dibble was a self-educated carpenter who became an anointed pastor. In 1865, he organized Trinity Methodist Episcopal Church and served as its head preacher. Five years later, Dibble and Richard Allen sat on the board of trustees for the Gregory Institute, the first public school in Houston for black children that was established in 1870. So these four men banded together to form the Colored People of Harris County Festival Association. They rallied the community to the cause and began collecting money. Church women cooked chicken dinners at fundraisers, and black landowners used their political and business connections to pull in donations. By 1872, the association had raised $800 to buy a 10-acre parcel of land in Third Ward. In a nod to the park's purpose as a place to celebrate freedom, the Festival Association named the land Emancipation Park. By signing that deed, they had just cemented the park as the center of a new community. At first, emancipation was only open during Juneteenth. Leaders just didn't have enough funding to operate the space year-round. But that didn't dampen the spirit. In 
Each year, Juneteenth celebrations grew. Community members dressed in their Sunday best and made their way to Third Ward, either by foot or by carriage. They rolled out blankets and listened to orators recite speeches from Frederick Douglass and Abe Lincoln. Music, dancing, and barbecue flowed as Houston's hot, dry days melted into hot, sticky nights. Soon, other festivals took up residence in the park. After being shut out of the citywide Notsuo Carnival, Black leaders created their own Mardi Gras-style celebration to recognize agricultural innovation and community values. The first Lock Notsuo Carnival and Industrial Exposition took place in Emancipation Park in November 1909. Now, let's pause a moment. I know what you're thinking. Lock Notsuo? Are those real words? Well, when you see them on the page, Lock is colored spelled backwards, and Notsuo is Houston spelled backwards. This play on letters extended to the festival's royal court, where organizers crowned a king La Yol y Sivrez, or loyal service spelled backwards. Black Texans from outside Houston would travel to the city by train for Lock. Once they arrived at Grand Central Station downtown, they were greeted by a band and parade leading to Third Ward. Meanwhile, Black Houstonians traveled to emancipation in carriages elaborately decorated with flowers and cotton. The park grounds featured a Ferris wheel, Wild West shows, football games, vendors, and music from national acts. Often, though, the weather had other plans. For several years, Lock events were halted by late fall storms, causing attendance to drop. By the early 1920s, the festival fell by the wayside. But it wasn't only Mother Nature that brought storms to Emancipation Park. Black Houstonians also had to contend with the nature of racism and the storm of white backlash. In a not-so-subtle move, the 1892 Houston City Council voted to rename a major thoroughfare running alongside Emancipation. They decided to change the name from East Broadway to Dowling Street to honor Confederate Commander Richard Dick Dowling. Even with this slight, the Third Ward community would not be moved. They made Dowling their own and transformed the street into a bustling business corridor. Raymond Bourgeois, the manager of Wolf's department store and pawn shop, told the Texas Observer that Dowling was downtown for black people. You had tailor shops, movie theaters, four motels, eating places every 50 feet, he remembered. As Third Ward thrived, emancipation flourished. In 1916, the city government absorbed the park, making it the oldest public park in Houston. Six years later, though, the park system segregated, making emancipation the only public park open to Black residents. That didn't matter much to those living in Third Ward. Emancipation was already the site of nearly every community event. Dances, concerts, fairs, picnics, sports games, you name it. 
1938, the Works Progress Administration constructed a community center with a pool, a popular attraction that brought children and parents from all over Houston down to emancipation. An entire generation of Third Ward residents remembers learning how to swim at that pool. Other activities included outdoor film screenings, like the ones Jewel Brown attended as a child. I never shall forget when I was a kid, we had the Emancipation Park. Mm -hmm. And they used to have movies for the children. They kept everybody busy with nice things, with good things. Jewel Brown would go on to become a renowned jazz and blues singer who toured with Louis Armstrong. If you were near the park on a quiet night in the 50s or 60s, you might hear Jewel's voice floating from the El Dorado Ballroom next door. Known as the home of Happy Feet, the club hosted legends like Ray Charles, Etta James, Arnett Cobb, and T-Bone Walker. Before band leaders struck up the tunes after sunset, visitors might notice a local football team running drills at Emancipation. For Yates High School, the park served as a space for teams and organizations to practice before games. Listen to a group of Yates alumni laugh about their after-school walks down Elgin Street, which could turn into runs if you made Coach mad that day. Yates had a glorious and fabulous football team, but they had no practice field at the school. We, we had to walk from from Elgin and Delano to the Emancipation Park, which was about eight blocks away. We had to walk there in uniform, not shoes. We couldn't wear our shoes. We had to wear we had to wear just our socks. We didn't put our football shoes on until we got to the to the park. But that's where we practiced. We walked to practice. Uh, six. It all ran uh, eight blocks away, and then we walked after practice. We walked back to back to the school. I'm glad you mentioned that because in the band. We didn't have a place to to do our marching and, 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 and performances for practice before games. So every day we would march from the school to the Emancipation Park while they were practicing. That's right. they, they, they didn't practice until the band got off the field because <laughs> they, they practiced after school. Just, it just so happened that the band... We were all scheduled at the sixth period, which was the last class of the day, which was around two o'clock. So we would assemble in the band room and then outside the band room and march to Emancipation Park where we could practice our drills and our formations that we were going to do at the game. Yeah. As much as Emancipation was the scene of daily life, it was also the scene of protest. When the civil rights movement gained steam in the 50s and 60s, the park became a common meeting place for rallies and demonstrations. Local organizers made speeches calling for desegregation and organized sit-ins at nearby stores and restaurants. Esther King, 
a lifelong Houston activist, remembered a few famous faces making their way to Third Ward at this time, including civil rights icon Martin Luther King Jr. I'm sort of painting the picture of a lot of activity going on during this time. Dr. King made two visits to Houston. Uh, His last visit was months before he was assassinated. He was here in the summer of 67, and he was killed, of course, in April of 68. We had a march uh, from um, Jefferson Stadium. Uh, I think we went down to Elgin. We went to Emancipation Park. Uh, had a rally at the Hester House. They used students as the um, leg people to do the work. They didn't have money to pay in preparation to Dr. King coming, passing out flyers, running off flyers. Oh, then, man, we listened. It's so different from the day. But events were not always peaceful around emancipation. In 1970, Houston's version of the Black Panther Party known as the People's Party II, set up their headquarters near the park on Dowling Street. They provided services like free medical care and food drives, but their display of firearms for protection led to many altercations with police. In July 1970, an incident escalated into a standoff when party leader Carl Hampton confronted Houston police officers about their treatment of a young man selling Black Panther newspapers. Guns were drawn on both sides, while Hampton and other party members barricaded themselves in the headquarters. Nine days later, Houston police officers got on the roof of the nearby St. John Missionary Baptist Church. Eyewitnesses say they saw police shoot and kill Hampton without provocation when he walked outside into the street but a grand jury later declined to indict the officers involved in the incident, saying they were acting in self-defense. The death of Carl Hampton still looms over Third Ward, especially in the wake of the 2020 killing of George Floyd at the hands of police in Minneapolis. Floyd grew up blocks away from emancipation in CUNY homes and attended Yates High School. George Floyd was a man Around the time of Hampton's death, emancipation and Third Ward began a slow decline. Some say the reason for this recession came from new highway construction that disrupted the neighborhood. Others point to the end of segregation, noting that many Black families moved to newly integrated neighborhoods and took their business with them. But author and filmmaker Carol Parrott Blue says Hampton's death was a breaking point in Third Ward. In a Houston History Magazine article, she writes, Houston, Texas cannot abide Negro men with guns. As the 80s and 90s wore on, emancipation became a ghost of its former self. Poverty took its toll on Third Ward, and businesses that surrounded the park 
closed up shop. Many of the programs were halted and equipment rusted away. But in the mid-2000s, a group of current and former residents took inspiration from their ancestors and resurrected a latent group known as Friends of Emancipation Park. The group began raising money to revitalize the park. They partnered with the city, who set up a special taxing district in the 90s with funds earmarked for emancipation. Local businesses and foundations also chipped in. By 2010, they had raised millions of dollars and recruited Phil Freeland as the lead designer for the renovation. Freeland is an acclaimed architect whose resume includes the design of the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. In June 2017, residents and officials gathered to rededicate the revamped space, just in time for Juneteenth. Under a metallic sculpture bearing the words creativity, release, liberation, and opportunity, attendees filled the air with joyful noise. Dowling Street even got a renovation, as city council members voted earlier that year to change the name to Emancipation Avenue. Enlivened by the celebration, people in Third Ward, who remembered what was, saw a vision of what could be. But the vision of what could be worries many residents in Third Ward, who see shiny new townhomes popping up alongside traditional row houses and longtime homeowners being displaced by rising taxes. There's a sense of dread among some who think all these improvements are being done for someone else. They don't want to follow in the footsteps of Fourth Ward, whose historic character is threatened by the gentrification of Midtown. Leaders say they hope to mitigate the negative effects of new arrivals. State representatives have promised more affordable housing in the area, and the park is safe, for now, from demolition, thanks to its historic landmark status. In the design phase for emancipation, Phil Freeland addressed these concerns directly. He told the Texas Observer that he wanted the park to be an active participant in the revitalization of Third Ward. Not in the sense of gentrifying, he said, but as a catalyst for the neighborhood's resurgence. Even today, emancipation still retains its original function. Though hampered by the recent coronavirus shutdowns, Juneteenth happens here every year. People continue to gather for rallies and celebrations, they mourn victims of police brutality with art installations and candlelight vigils. The Emancipation Park Conservancy partners with the city to maintain the grounds and put on community programs. It's true that there are faces in every shade at Emancipation today, but Houston is also one of the most diverse cities in the nation. In its nearly 150 years of existence, the park has never been exclusionary. Its history can and should be shared with everyone. But make no mistake, Emancipation Park belongs firmly under the care and in the memory of Black Houstonians. It is the heartbeat of Third Ward, and one that will beat on for generations to come. 
you would like to volunteer at Emancipation Park or show your support through a donation, contact the Emancipation Park Conservancy at www.epconservancy.org. That's www.epconservancy.org. Research for the podcast came from the Texas Observer, Houston Forward Times, Houston History Magazine, and the Handbook of Texas. A special thanks to the University of Houston Special Collections and the Gregory School, whose oral histories greatly enrich this production. This episode is produced by Caitlin Jones for the Center for Public History. Thank you for joining us for this special episode of Public Historians at Work. For more stories from the Third Ward, check out the oral history collection in the University of Houston libraries at digital.lib.uh.edu. To learn more about the Center for Public History, find us online at uh.edu slash class slash cph or on Facebook and Twitter at uhcphistory. Remember, we are all keepers of our history.